Our sermon passage this morning is Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi 3, 6 reads, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. At this time, we'd like to call the children down front. Well, the Bible verse that we just read tells us something very interesting about God. It tells us one of the many ways in which God is different from us. This verse says that God does not change. People change. You used to be a baby. You used to wear diapers. You used to drink from a bottle. Now you go to school. And believe it or not, your own dad and mom used to be babies too. And one day... You'll be old like your grandma and grandpa. You'll have white hair and you'll want to go to bed early. The world changes. Just a couple months ago, the leaves had bright green leaves. The trees all had bright green leaves on them. Then the leaves changed to yellow and orange and red. Then they changed to brown and then they fell off the trees and they're on the ground. And now all the trees have no leaves and even the grass is starting to turn brown. And pretty soon there'll be snow on the ground and you won't even be able to see the grass. But God does not change. It's easy to say it. It's kind of easy to imagine at first. But after a while, it's pretty hard to imagine because we don't know what it's like to not change. And besides, a lot of times change is a good thing. You couldn't walk before, now you can. That's a good thing. You couldn't read before, now you can. That's a good thing. Maybe you didn't have brothers or sisters before, and now you've got a little baby brother or sister, and that's a good thing. Maybe you were sick, and now you feel better, and that's a good change. But God does not change. He never gets old. He never gets tired. He never forgets. He never learns because he already knows everything. He never likes something now and then later doesn't like it. He never changes his mind. Nothing surprises him. I don't want to embarrass your dads or moms, but I'm sure this is true, sometimes they have bad days. When you get up for school in the morning, mom or dad is already in a bad mood and kind of angry. What do you want for breakfast? Well, speak up. Don't just stand there. And you're not sure what the problem is, and maybe they don't know what the problem is either. But all day, they're in a bad mood, and it's not just you, but everyone else gets yelled at for no reason, apparently. When you come home from school, you're afraid to ask for help with your homework because you don't want to get yelled at again. Well, the reason that happens is because people, dads and moms included, people change. They change from being happy to sad. They change from being glad to mad. But God does not change. And that should make us very happy. We know that God does not change. He doesn't have good days and bad days. So whenever his children come to him, He is always there to hear their prayers and to help them. And that means that when God promises something, He will always keep His promise. He will never forget. He will never make excuses for breaking His promises because He will not break them. He will not change. Because God doesn't change, His Word can always be trusted. God's holy Bible is not the work of men. If the Bible were the work of men, we couldn't trust it. Men change. If the Bible were the work of men, 
its meaning would change and therefore we could not trust what it says. But since the Bible is God's word and God's work, we know that we can always believe everything that it says and that we can always trust it. Nothing in the Bible was true for people a long time ago, but not true for us today. God lives forever. He never changes. So whatever he says also lives forever and never changes. Never forget that you can and that you should always believe the Bible as the very word of God himself. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As soon as we pray, you can return to your seats, okay? O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, by nature, are blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. While they're making their way back, the long way, let's reread our text. Malachi 3.6 For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Our sermon this morning is on the immutability of God. Immutability means unchangeableness. Now Malachi was written after Judah's 70 years of exile in Babylon. The exile was God's chastisement of a perpetually backsliding church. Now that this exile was over, the people should have returned and they should have rebuilt the temple, but they hadn't done this. In fact, the people had even begun committing some of the very same sins for which they were sent into exile in the first place. When we read Malachi, we get a glimpse into the heart of the church. We're reading about the covenant unfaithfulness of a people who had in their glorious history the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, the establishment of the dynasty of David, and the glories of the reign of King Solomon. They also had the sad tales of their own unfaithfulness, the warnings of the prophets, the division of the kingdom, the fall of Israel to Assyria, and the fall of Judah to Babylon. By the time we get to Malachi, we're about 1,300 years after the time of Abraham. The church had the advantage of history on their side. They had repeatedly seen the blessings that came with faithfulness and the chastenings that came with unfaithfulness. At the time of Malachi, they were living within one lifetime of the shameful fall of Jerusalem. But even then, with all this witness of history before their eyes, the church still strayed from the Lord. They needed God to save them from themselves. Malachi is a final statement of judgment in the Old Testament anticipates God's saving work through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When we read Malachi, as we said a minute ago, we get a glimpse into the heart of the church. The history of God's people, whether in the Bible or in the days since the apostles, tells the same sad story. The church is prone to wander, prone to leave God. 
In our text, God declares that the only reason the church continues to exist in the world is His immutability. I change not, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The outline then of our sermon this morning runs thus. God is, one, immutable in His essence. Secondly, immutable in His knowledge. And thirdly, immutable in His will. Now first of all, let's define more formally what exactly it is we mean when we say that God is immutable. We've already said that immutable means unchangeable. But we need to probe this idea a little more to see its breadth and its depth. When we say that God is immutable, we are saying that God is unchangeable in His essence and in His attributes. In one sense, immutability and eternity are very closely linked. I mean, you could say that true immutability is true eternity. Because to go from non-existence to existence is a change. And since immutability means unchangeable, true immutability requires eternal existence. The way that they differ in our conception, I guess, is that immutability refers to the essence or existence of a thing, whereas eternity refers to the duration of a state in that being. Simply put, immutability is the state itself, and eternity is the measure of the state. And that brings us to our first point. God is immutable in His essence. The immutability of God is a perfection. And since only God is perfect, only God is immutable. Now God's attributes are classified into two categories. Those called incommunicable and those called communicable. A lot of big words this morning. Incommunicable means that they cannot be shared in any way with creatures. Communicable means that they can, in some sense, be shared by His creatures, although in a very limited sense. For instance, omnipresence, that is being fully present at all places at the same time, is an attribute of God that cannot in any way be shared with His creatures. Goodness, on the other hand, is an attribute of God that can in some way be shared by His creatures, just in a limited sense. Immutability is an attribute that is absolutely incommunicable to any creature. It belongs to God alone. There are no defects in Him. He cannot change. He need not change. He is infinitely perfect in Himself. And of course, this cannot be said of anyone but God. And Paul actually uses this fact as an evidence of the deity of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, Paul quotes Psalm 102 in reference to Christ. And that passage speaking of all created things, says, they will be changed, but you are the same. Now that argument would not carry water if immutability belonged to any other being besides God. Jesus is God, as revealed by the Scriptures, because the Scriptures declare Him to be unchangeable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, we've noted this several times, I guess, in the last couple of weeks, but change implies either improvement or decline. Every time you buy a new thing, a version of something you already have, you're doing it because the old one has changed. It's changed from fixed to broken, or working to not working, or compatible to incompatible. Nobody shells out thousands of dollars on new farm equipment just for the sheer thrill of spending money. Nearly every product on the market brags about being new and improved. That's the change, obviously, in the other direction, for the better. When our kids come home from school, we ask them, what did you learn today? 
We're asking, how have you changed? Every experience changes us. Falling down the stairs changes us. Bad weather changes us. A bad experience at a restaurant changes us. The shared experiences of a life as a couple change us, hopefully for the better. Things that we argued about 15 years ago don't even register today. Raising children changes us. Things that we freaked out about with the first child don't phase us with the second or third. Our bodies change. Hair color changes. Eyesight gets blurry. Knuckles get tight. Backs get stiff. Knees wear out. Some changes we'd call growth, physically, mentally, emotionally. Some changes we'd call decline, physically, mentally, and emotionally. But all change implies improvement or decline. We are not what we once were. But God does not change. He is eternal. He never ages. He is a spirit. He never gets tired or weary. He's perfect. He never improves. God is unchangeable in all of His attributes, but we're going to focus on one this morning, and that is His knowledge. And that's our second point. God is immutable in His knowledge. When you change your mind, it's usually because something unexpected has happened. You couldn't foresee every potentiality. Had you been able to foresee them, you would have planned around them. How often do people say, boy, if I only knew then what I know now. That's why we say hindsight is 2020. Sometimes you change your mind because you learn more about the situation, and so you decide that a different course of action will serve your purposes better. But at any rate, there has been a change in your knowledge. You learned something that you didn't know before, and because your knowledge has changed, your plans change to suit this change of your knowledge. But none of this can be true of God. God cannot learn. Now, I know that at first blush, that sounds weird. And that's because we think of learning as a good thing. And the reason learning is a good thing for us is because our knowledge is limited. The only way, though, that God could learn were if He didn't know everything perfectly. But God does know everything perfectly. And therefore, He cannot learn. And in God, the fact that He cannot learn is a perfection, not a flaw. I mean, for one, God created all things, and therefore His knowledge must extend to all things. And God perfectly knows Himself, and since He's infinite, His knowledge must be infinite also. Infinite knowledge is unchangeable knowledge. Now, if God could change, it would either be necessary or voluntary. The notion that God could be forced to change is so ridiculous, we won't even spend time on it. But let's imagine that God were to voluntarily change. Well, he would only choose to change for the better, obviously. Nobody chooses to change for the worse. Now, people do change for the worse, but it's because they value something as good that really isn't good. I mean, nobody has an affair just for the simple sake of committing adultery. It's always because they think that this new lover is going to improve their life. Nobody commits murder simply for the sake of killing, but it's because they think my life will be better if that guy's dead. If God were to change for the worse, that would argue a defect in his knowledge whereby he mistook something bad for being good. If God voluntarily chose the change, that would be, it would be for the better. But that in itself implies that he's not perfect because he could improve. And that would imply that there is a more perfect good outside of God 
since he that he desires to attain. And that means that there would be some desirable good outside God, above God, better than God. And if he did voluntarily change, why, if he could, why didn't he do it before? Why did he wait till now? Did he not have the power before to change? Did he not know something before that he knows now? Did he not want this better quality before? I mean, do you see the, the quicksand of stupidity that this line of thought throws us into? If God were mutable, he'd be absolutely unworthy of worship. If he had the wisdom and power to change for the better, and he didn't, then he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't love himself as the greatest good. To suggest that God can change plunges you instantly into insanity. But now we have to tackle a possible objection. What about those passages of Scripture that speak of God changing his mind or not doing something he promised or threatened? Now we're going to argue that this language does not infer a change in God. But we're going to start a couple miles out and work our way in. The old Reformed theologians often used the term impassibility, along with immutability, as a way of expressing God's unchangeableness. Now the two terms are similar, but they should be distinguished this way. God is personally involved in creation, but as the sovereign creator, he doesn't grow with it, he doesn't change with it or because of it. That's the doctrine of immutability. Because God is perfect in his character, he is not swayed by the events of history. As a covenant God, he blesses and curses, he forgives and judges, <coughs> excuse me, but his holy attributes are not mood-driven or capable of being manipulated. That's the doctrine of impassibility. Now you notice that I said his attributes, and not emotions. The doctrine of immutability requires impassibility because possessing emotions necessitates change. I was happy this morning, now I'm ticked off. I was satisfied yesterday, today I'm disappointed. That is change, but God does not change. Many modern thinkers are afraid of the doctrine of impassibility because to them it seems like it makes God distant. Now before I dispel that myth, I want to say that we far too easily fall into the sin of creating God after our own image. And therefore, the notion of God not having emotion seems frightening to us. I would counter by saying that we should consider the fact that the possession of passions is a feature of creaturehood. It's neither good nor bad in itself. It's just merely part of what it means to be human. But God is not human. These doctrines, immutability and impassibility, they do not make God distant. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And we see by them that God is unlike all the false gods. Think of the gods of Egypt, for instance. The gods of Egypt, like men, might suffer disease. Ra occasionally had a disease of the eyes, so there would be darkness for a time. That's what they called an eclipse. He nearly died when he was stung in the heel by a scorpion. Horus, the son of Isis, had headaches and, like Ra, nearly lost his life to the sting of a scorpion. When a god was stricken with disease, he would turn to aid to his friends among the gods. The God of the Bible is not like these idols. As the Westminster Confession puts it, God is the, quote, one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection. 
a most perfect spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Now that is comfort to the hearts of God's children. This means that we never run the risk of catching God on a bad day. He will never be fickle. We know that He is our faithful Heavenly Father. As an impassable God, He does not have good days and bad days. As an immutable God, He does not change His mind. He does not get tired. He never sleeps on the job. Now, when I first mentioned the terms immutability and impassibility, I'm sure a few people wrinkled their foreheads and worried that we were going to get all airy-fairy. But I trust by now you see that these doctrines, while they may take a minute to learn, are precious comforts to the heart of a believer. As one author put it, they undergird the quality of his control and the certainty of his sovereignty. Without a firm grasp on these doctrines, our own mental state vacillates because of the lack of knowledge that God has given us. Namely, that He is in the heaven and He does as He pleases. And therefore, His immutability and His impassibility secure every one of His promises. Okay, but what about the passages of Scripture where God is said to repent or where He doesn't do what He threatened? Well, let's start by defining the terms. Repentance cannot be applied properly to God because repentance implies change, and God does not change. The New Testament Greek word rendered repentance is metanoia, and it literally means after thought or change of mind. The idea is that you reconsidered the thing, and now you don't think about it the way that you did before. Since you think differently, you act differently. As Gary Davis used to sing, the things that I used to would do, I don't do no more. The Old Testament Hebrew word has the exact same meaning. And in fact, in Hebrew, there's often the connotation of easing oneself by taking vengeance. And the idea is that of violently acting out against one's own former actions. That definitely implies change of mind. Repentance properly defined implies regret. It implies lack of foresight or ignorance of the outcome of this course of action. As Stephen Charnock writes, all repentance is grounded upon a mistake in the event which was not foreseen or upon an afterknowledge of the evil of the thing which was acted by the person repenting. Well, obviously, none of this can be said properly about God as an infinitely perfect, immutable, and impassable being. God is not capable of the passions that indicate weakness or regret. God cannot be mistaken about the future since He ordained all things which come to pass. God's foresight of all things is perfect, and repentance is inconsistent with perfect foresight. And grief is inconsistent with infinite and eternal blessedness. And according to Romans 9.5, God is blessed forever. God is in one mind and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, even that he does. Job 23.13. So why then does the scripture sometimes use the language it does? Well, the reason why is because scripture accommodates itself to our weakness. 
Like, I'm not blind. I can see the puzzled looks on a few faces a, minute, a couple minutes ago when I introduced the doctrine of impassibility. I could sense, because I was once there myself, the queasiness of thinking about God not possessing passions. Because we think of emotions as a mark of our superiority over plants and animals. So to think of God as without emotion seems like we're lowering Him somehow. But the issue really is that we are incapable of thinking about God as He really is. Now we know why we can't, and that's because He is infinite and we are finite. And so God accommodates Himself and revelation of Himself to our weakness. God no more has real repentance than he has a real physical body. But throughout the scriptures, we read of God's eyes, his ears, his hands, and his feet. We cannot comprehend him as he is, and so he speaks to us in terms that we can comprehend. He uses expressions that we can relate to. Not because he's like us with a body and with passions, but because by Our knowledge of our bodies and our passions, we can attain some understanding of his dealings with us. You remember that we said that one of the meanings of the word holy is the quality of being completely other? Yeah, that's the point. We have no equivalent in our experience for the perfections of God's immutable and impassable nature. And the scriptures routinely say things like, behold, God is great and we do not know him. And How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Or great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. The only way that God can meaningfully reveal himself to us is to accommodate himself to our weakness. Those ways of speaking where God talks of changing his mind or altering his plans are intended only to indicate something about God that has a resemblance to us. God can't speak to us as gods, so he speaks to us as men. He reveals himself in words that suit what we are. I think few of us would say to our seven-year-old, Don't be ostentatious. Now we'd say, don't be a show-off. So when Scripture speaks or says that, that God repents of His intention to do something, it is speaking of a change of His outward conduct. He can change the way of His dealings with His creatures without changing His will. When Genesis 6 tells us that God repented that he made man, it's because there's about to be a monumental change in his dealing with man. We're about to witness a change from forbearance to severe wrath. God is suiting his language to our capability. And this expresses to us quite forcibly, actually, his utter hatred of sin and his firm resolution to punish it. It refers to a change of events not a change in God's eternal plan. When we repent, we feel, some, we feel grief for some past act, and we change course. But as the Scripture says, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. The fall of man didn't catch God off guard. He didn't merely know that it was going to happen. He willed it. It was His plan. Now, how could God repent That is, feel sorry about and regret something in time that he didn't regret in eternity. So when God is said to repent, he's actually changing the disposition of affairs outside himself. Nothing of his own uh, plans or purposes change. He does not pour out the threatened wrath or the promised blessing, not because he's changed, but because his creatures have changed relative to him. 
Now, another way of thinking about it would be to say that when the Bible speaks of emotions such as joy, grief, and repentance, it's saying that were God like us, that is, were He capable of such passions as we are, this particular state of affairs would evoke in Him this or that passion. I mean, sometimes the Bible speaks of the heavens or of the sea or mountains rejoicing. And we don't infer from that that inanimate mountains or seas actually experience joy. We understand that this is the language of analogy. If seas were capable of joy, this event would cause it joy. In the same way, if God were a weak being such as we are, possessed of such passions, He would have the passions that we do joy at a sinner's repentance, and anger at men's sin. And that brings us to our final point. God is immutable in His will. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we're looking in anticipation at celebrating the birth of Christ. Christ's Advent is one of the greatest expressions of God's immutability. God decreed the salvation of His people. God made a covenant with them in Christ. And God has kept His covenant promises precisely because He is immutable. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus if he should forgive his brother seven times a day? Of course, he's imagining that seven times is way beyond the call of duty. And Jesus says, forgive him 70 times seven. That answer of Jesus is reflect. God's patience with his children. Now imagine how you'd fare as a mutable creature in God's place in Malachi 3. The church has done nothing but disbelieve and stray from you from the day they were constituted as a people. You've done more than they deserve to warn them, and yet they've ignored everything that you've done. And God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The only thing that guarantees the success of the gospel, the only thing that guarantees the preservation of the church, the only thing that preserves me is the immutability of God. If God had bad days like I do, if God changed like I do, I'd be toast. The reason God saves and preserves His people is His immutability. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, God tells us, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord God drives them out from before you. And that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised the advent of the Christ in Eden. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. And almost immediately, men began to try to derail that promise by intermarrying with unbelievers. God promised the advent of the Christ through Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham endangers the promise by having a baby with Hagar. God promised the advent of the Christ to Joseph and Mary. And Herod orders the slaughter of all the babies in Bethlehem. The whole Bible is a chronicle of God's immutability in the teeth of the dynamic duo of the devil's plots and the church's waywardness. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the faithfulness of God. God is faithful because He is immutable. He is faithful because He does not change.